back uh, from riding somewhere, and uh, he's always riding his bike, but uh, we're doing a series called Risen, because one of the central truths of the Christian faith is Jesus Christ not only died on a cross, was buried, but on the third day rose again from the dead. And uh, that's why we meet on the first day of the week on Sunday. And uh, on Easter Sunday, we'll be remembering uh, that cataclysmic event that really has divided history, changed millions of lives, and is why we meet here as a group of believers. If you have your Bibles, will you turn to the Gospel of John? That's in the New Testament, second half of the Bible. Gospel of John, and I want you to turn to chapter 19. Divided into sections, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and chapter 19. And we're going to read a few verses there, starting from verse 16. It's not on the screen today. And I'm going to ask Kathy to read it to us. John chapter 19. We're going to read verses 16 to 27. And then will you watch the screen, please? Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified, so the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. When the Messiah comes, Rome will be nothing! Until then... The Nazarene said he'd rise again after three days. We will lose peace and order if it's true. Will the people believe it? The weak will. There will be no other gods. Kill him. The tomb is sealed, guarded with your life. Tribune, Pilate summons you. The body has vanished. His tomb is empty. Where has he gone? You tell me. 
Already they are proclaiming him risen from death. The Emperor cannot arrive to unrest. We must find a body. Home the city for bodies dead in the last week. Take them up. Everyone. His disciples. Where are they hiding his corpse? It was not his followers. Another body, sir. Just revealed. No. Who told you that Nazarene was alive? Mary Magdalene. You're looking for something you'll never find. Open your heart and see. No more lies. What happened to the body? The ropes, the just exploded. You should have returned by now. I have seen two things which cannot reconcile. A man dead without question. And that same man alive again. Father in heaven, we ask that the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ may impact our lives like it did those first followers. We may not be the ones who saw the risen Christ. We may not be the ones who saw with our own eyes the empty tomb. We may not be the ones who sat with him and ate with him and touched him and heard him after he rose from the dead. But we've heard their testimony, we've heard their witness, and they were willing to die for it. And so we pray that you will transform our lives and impact this church and change our futures through the reality of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians makes this statement, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. It wasn't something he made up. It wasn't something he conjured up. It was something that the early Christians declared right from the beginning And Paul later on is proclaiming this. And this is what he proclaimed, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That his death was an atoning death. It wasn't just a martyr for some good cause. He actually was dying in the plan of the Almighty to make it possible for your sin to be dealt with, your sin to be atoned for so that you could be reconciled to your Creator. And it was something that was promised thousands of years before through the prophets of the Old Testament, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried. So you know that this was not a phantom death or a swooning or something else we'll look at next week. This was a a real death. He did die because you don't bury unconscious people. You only bury dead people. 
and Romans knew how to crucify and knew when someone was dead. And it was checked before his body was allowed to be buried. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Because the Old Testament prophets had said and prophesied thousands of years before that you wouldn't be able to keep the Holy One in the grave. That God would raise him from the dead. And on that first Easter Sunday, when we celebrate Easter Sunday, is the day we remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Not a phantom appearance, but that actual body was brought back to life. A reanimation of that dead corpse by the power of the Almighty. He was raised from the dead. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to 12. And then it goes on to say more than 500 people at one time. Written at the time that it was saying, if you don't believe what I'm saying, Paul says, go talk to Cephas. Go talk to the 12. Go talk to the 500 and others. And so this was the early kerygma. This was the early gospel declaration of those early believers. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he rose again on the third day. And we're going to be focusing more on this on the next couple of weeks and especially on Easter Sunday. But this morning I want us to come back before we look at the resurrection. I want us to come back and look at the cross And I want to talk about and look at three people who were there at that crucifixion on that Good Friday. Interesting, we call it good. It wasn't good for many people then. Some people would say it wasn't even good for Jesus himself. But what he achieved on that cross was good for you and was good for me. And it transformed lives of people then and throughout the centuries. And so I want us to pause for a moment and consider three people who were there at that crucifixion that changed history. Max Licardo wrote in his book, No Wonder They Call Him the Saviour, these words, The Cross. It rests on the timeline of history like a compelling diamond. Its tragedy summons all sufferers. Its absurdity attracts all cynics. Its hope lures all searchers. History has idolised it and despised it, gold-plated it and burned it, Worn it and trashed it. History has done everything to it but ignore it. That's the one option that the cross does not offer. No one can ignore it. You can't ignore a piece of lumber that suspends the greatest claim in history. Its bottom line is sobering. If the account is true, it is history's hinge, period. If it is not, it is history's hoax. That's why the cross is what matters. So what really happens when people encounter the cross of Jesus Christ? We're going to find out by looking at three people who were there. Firstly, the cross is a place of redemption. We read, as was read to us just before, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. I don't know whether you've ever noticed as you read the gospel accounts that they give an incredible amount of detail. It's not sort of a, sort of a 
a mystical story that they've made up. They're writing as real history, talking about real people. And presuming you can go talk to them if you don't believe what I've written. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Mary was a favorite name for a kid back then. And there was Mary, the mother of Jesus. The young lady who was willing to allow God through his spirit to birth in her the saviour of the world. Then his mother's sister, Mary's, the mother of Jesus' sister, most likely the lady we hear about in other parts of the scriptures called Salome. Then there was Mary, the wife of Clopas. We don't know much about her, but people then must have known who Clopas was, maybe somebody important, we're not sure, and uh, she was there. And then there was Mary Magdalene. The Mary who came from Magdala, because that was a, a little village in Israel at the time, and this Mary was known as the Mary who came from that village. And so was known as Mary Magdalene, the one from Magdala. You might say the most unlikely person there at the cross. Do you ever feel that you're the least likely person to be forgiven, to receive redemption? The Apostle Paul, who wrote that statement we read before, he, he said that. I can't believe that Jesus, I'm a follower of Jesus, because he, in the early stages of the Christian church, were putting them in prison, putting them to death, and hunting Christians down, until he personally met the risen Christ. On the road to Damascus, he tells his story. You can read it in the accounts. And his life was transformed and he spoke of himself. How could I be a follower of Jesus? How could I ever serve God? Why would he ever want me? I crucified and killed and imprisoned his followers. And probably Mary Magdalene felt a little bit of the same. Because the Bible says that uh, Mary and there was a number of other ladies at the same time who were, who were affected by particular diseases, were not given the details, and were delivered from demonic forces. And it says that Mary was delivered from seven demons. In our society, we either mock it or we watch movies about people's heads turning and some horror movies and talk about evil spirits as if it's sort of a fun thing. But... The reality of evil spirits is true. There are supernatural beings. The Bible talks about angels who follow God and evil spirits, or sometimes spoken as demons, who follow Satan, created beings who have rebelled just like we have against the authority of the Almighty. And Mary Magdalene was possessed and indwelt by seven of these that uh, brought bondage into her life whether emotionally or spiritually or physically. But she experienced deliverance from that. She was set free. And the cross of Jesus Christ has made possible your freedom and my freedom, your redemption and my redemption, that we can be set free, perhaps not from demonic forces if we've never played around with Ouija boards or evil spirits.
And as I've shared before, I was brought up in a culture in Papua New Guinea who knew the reality of that in their life and actually sacrificed pigs to appease the evil spirits. And when they met Jesus, their lives were transformed because the evil one would bring them into fear and into bondage and into darkness. And the joy in their lives that came when they surrendered their life to Jesus and they were set free from fearing evil spirits and being possessed and under their domination. Maybe you haven't done that, but we're all in bondage to sin and our own rebellious heart. And when we come to the cross like Mary Magdalene and meet Jesus, we can be set free. And that's what we're remembering this morning when we take the bread and take the cup. That what Jesus did for us on the cross has meant our redemption, our rescue from sin. What Jesus did on the cross means that the wrath of God against our rebellion has been dealt with. He has taken it. When Jesus died on the cross, he has removed the guilt of our sin and made us right with him. When Jesus died on the cross, he made it possible for us who were enemies to become his friends. For God was in Christ, restoring the world to himself in the cross. Have you come to the cross of Jesus? And have you experienced redemption like Mary of Magdala? Like Mary Magdalene? You see, the cross is a place of exchange. Unfathomable exchanges take place when you come to the cross. You go from darkness to light. You discover the power of God as he begins to take control of your life. So you move from weakness to power. You move from guilt to grace. You exchange past failures for future hope. This is what Jesus did for Mary Magdalene. And this is what we're remembering he has done for us. And this is what he can do for you if you've never met him yet. But that redemption was costly. For, for me and for you to receive forgiveness, Jesus had to be made sin for us and die in our place as our substitute. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, before the night, he was betrayed. He said, if there's any other way, if this cup can pass from me, but not my will but yours be done. If there's any other way to rescue human beings, to save you, but if there's not, I'm willing to go to the cross. And so he did, and then he cried out in that final statement, it is accomplished. It is finished. It has been achieved. That all that was necessary for you to be forgiven was made possible in his death on a cross. And the skies turned black, we are told, for three and a half hours. There was silence in heaven as Jesus took the sin of the world, took your guilt and your shame and your rebellion and your alienation and paid its penalty as your substitute. That's the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ through his death on the cross. And the nails that drove through his hands on that day went straight into the heart of God. 
For this was not God sending someone else to do his dirty work. This was God incarnate, God in human flesh, taking your judgment and your sin and your guilt and your shame and offering in exchange his purity, his relationship, his righteousness, his eternal life. That's why if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then all he achieved on the cross was not true. So my question this morning to you is, have you been born again? Have you experienced this new birth, this redemption, this being set free that Mary Magdalene experienced from meeting Jesus? Have you met the risen Jesus and experienced the new life, the new beginning, the new start that only he can make possible? Because Jesus met another person, not Mary Magdalene, out of whom seven spirits came, but he also met a very religious leader called Nicodemus who lived a very moral life. And yet to him he said, you need to be transformed. You need to be born again from above. You need God's life in you, not just your good life for God. For that's the Christian message compared to every other religion. Religion says you must do, 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 and perhaps God will accept you. The cross says God has done everything needed for your forgiveness. It's been achieved. It's been done. What you must do is receive. Last night I did a start of a pre-marriage series with a young couple who are getting married in June and the son of Penny over there and Calvin and a lovely young couple. And uh, this is not a story about them. This is actually a story about somebody else whose name was uh, Scott and Leslie. I don't know whether this is a true story. I hope it's not. But I heard this story from another preacher, and uh, I thought it just sums up what I'm talking about here. They they were just married, this young couple, and uh, madly in love, of course. And uh, he had organized their first honeymoon night in a very luxurious hotel with all the bells and whistles. The wedding was late and ran late and the reception after it, so by the time they got there, they were just sort of left the key and had to make their own way to the room. It was extremely late. When they got into this room, it was only a small room and there was a sofa and a table and a chair and uh, it was too late to get any help, so they pulled out the sofa and it was a a terrible night's sleep on this crinkly old uh, sofa bed. And so by the morning he was pretty, yeah, well, you know, he was not too happy. And uh, so Scott went down to see the guy at reception and uh, told him what he thought. And the guy just looked stunned. He said, I can't believe that. He said, did you open the door into the room? He didn't realize that there was, you know, the, you know, those walls that you can just sort of push and the door opens. You don't have a handle. And uh, when he went back to the room and pressed the button, he opened it up. And there was the sweet, 
with roses, chocolates, robes, everything laid out for a special top of the range, what he thought he had paid for first night on their honeymoon. You see, it was all there. He just hadn't opened the door. And your forgiveness and your gift of eternal life, your future, the removal of guilt and shame and the opportunity of a new start and a new beginning has all been achieved, has all been done. That's the message of the cross. But I have to open the door. I have to receive. Because it's a gift of love. And love always demands love's response. And God in Christ loved you and gave himself for you. But you must respond in love to that love and receive all that he's done for you. And the Bible says we do that by repenting, by turning back to God from our own way and by believing in the one who came and died and was buried and rose again and receiving forgiveness of sins and the gift of his Holy Spirit who is the gift of eternal life. Have you been born again? Have you experienced that new birth? That's the message of Easter. That's the message of the cross. It's all been done. But have you opened the door? The other person who was at the cross that we want to learn from this morning is the cross is a place of relationship. Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, the writer of the gospel, John himself, refers to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Do you know that's also you? You're the one who Jesus loved. He loved you enough that he went to the cross. He loved you enough that the eternal God became a human being and took on human frailty in order that he could give himself as a sacrifice for your sins and rose again from the dead so that you could come back into relationship with him and his family. And he said to her, woman, here is your son and to the disciple, here is your mother. Here is your son, and here is your mother. I've always had a few questions about this when I've written that, because Jesus had some brothers. There was James and Jude we know at least of, probably had four brothers, and uh, from what who's recorded. And yet he asked John to take care of him. There's no answer given. I don't know the answer. It's just a question that I have. Uh, why did he ask John to take care of his mother? You see, Jesus was the eldest son, and... Looks like Joseph was already dead. It was his responsibility. And now he was dying. He asked his closest friend to take care of his mother. A few years ago, a Forbes magazine asked a pastor of a very large church in the States, Ray Johnson, if they could do an interview with him. And uh, he, said, he said, I don't know why. Your magazine's for millionaires. And uh, you must have the wrong Ray Johnson, so I don't know why you're asking me. They replied, we want to interview and see how you who run a large church 
and what's involved in that to help other CEOs of large organisations, and we want to just compare the differences. He said we had a fascinating three-hour conversation, and then he said the last question to him was the best question, and they asked, what is the most important thing that you have learned in the last 10 years? And his response was, that's easy. Here it is. The solution to everything is the right person. He explained that in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel prospered with the right leader and declined under the wrong leader. He also said, by the way, that is also the central message of the Bible. The solution to everything is not the right religion. It's not the right rituals. The solution to everything is a relationship with the right person. And Christians believe that person is Jesus Christ. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. We not only come into a right relationship with God at the cross, but when we put our faith in him, we actually come into a relationship with other people who have experienced that same transformation. We are baptized, the Bible says, into the body of Christ the church. And as Paul says in Ephesians, you are no longer strangers and aliens, outsiders without rights of relationship or citizenship. You are members of God's household. That means because of the cross, we belong in God's household with every other Christian. And it takes every one of us to make God's household complete. Because of the cross, we are now part of his family. So we know I not only belong to the Merriweather family, as my name is Merriweather, and have responsibilities there, but I also belong to his family, known as the church of the firstborn, or the church of Jesus Christ, or the church of the risen one. And my question this morning is, love your family. Don't take your family for granted, whether in the physical or in the spiritual. And as we prayed for this morning, and as the scripture over and over and over and over again says, love one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, build one another up. They'll know you are Christians by your love for one another. So often people think that the church is an optional extra. I can just sort of love Jesus and follow him. It doesn't matter. When you were born, you were born into your family. And you can't choose your brothers and sisters. You just have to learn to get on with them. And sometimes that's not always easy. But you have the same DNA in you because you have the same parents. You're in the same family. And when we're born again of the Spirit of God, we have the same Heavenly Father and the same eternal life, and He's placed us in a family. And we can't always choose our family. But we need to love our family and grow with our family and encourage our family and be challenged by our family. See, as we meet around the Lord's Supper this morning, it's not just about my relationship with Him, but it's also affirming my relationship with one another. I'm doing this as part of his body, the church, the present manifestation of the rule of God through Christ, the kingdom of God on earth.
And then the cross is also a place of responsibility, and we see it in John. The cross is a place of redemption. We see it in Mary Magdalene. And the cross is the place of relationship, and we see it in Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her relationship, her new relationship, and being cared for by John the Apostle. And the cross is a place of responsibility that was placed on John. We see through the beloved John that the cross is a place of responsibility. Woman, here is your son, and a disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Tradition says they moved later to Ephesus, uh, where John was serving in the church and leading the church there, and Mary was there, and these documentations that they died there and were buried there in Ephesus. You see, Jesus was saying that John was going to take Jesus' place and the responsibility of the firstborn son because there was no aged care pension in those days. There was no government subsidy to look after you or homes to be put in. It was the responsibility of the firstborn son to take care of the family. And even at his crucifixion, he thought about his mother. He thought about his mother and arranged for her care into her old age and asked John to take responsibility, his best mate, to take responsibility for that. And John accepted that responsibility to stand in for Jesus' place. And it's interesting that Jesus says to his followers, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. You might say we stand in the place of Jesus. We are Jesus in this world. That's why the church is spoken of as his body, spoken of as his bride, spoken of as his temple. We're his dwelling place so that we can be his hands and feet in the world. As we go into that workplace or into that school or into that home, we are to be Jesus there. We are to be Jesus there. Have you accepted the responsibility of living as a disciple, a fully devoted follower of Jesus? To love God with all your heart as Jesus did, he always did what pleased his Father. To love your brothers and sisters in the time he spent with his disciples. So much so that John called himself the one that Jesus loved. And he also loved those who were his enemies and who didn't want to have anything to do with him. He loved those whose lives were messed up like Mary Magdalene, possessed by seven demonic forces. And we're to be Jesus. Not in our own strength or in our own ability, but because Jesus rose from the dead and sent his spirit to live in your life and my life if we've opened the door to him so that he can live his life in us individually and together as his body, the church, and then through us. And so we come back to where we began. And we're going to remember this statement as we take the bread 
and take the cup. And I'm going to ask those who are going to wait on us to come now and to pass this out. We want to say you're welcome. Whether this is your first time at Outlook or you've been here since we began, will you, we invite you to take a cup, take a piece of the bread, and eat and drink with us. For we're remembering our Lord Jesus Christ. So just take the bread and take the cup and just hold both for a moment as they're being passed out and we'll eat and pray and then we will drink together in just a moment. For what I received I passed on to you of first importance. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We're going to eat the bread and that bread reminds us of his body that was nailed to a wooden cross. Not as a martyr, but as a sacrifice for your sin to atone, to be the propitiation to satisfy the just wrath of God toward our rebellion to rescue us from our captivity and bondage to sin and to evil, to justify us, to put us right and remove the guilt of our sin and to declare us righteous and to reconcile us to himself, us who are his enemies, alienated from him. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He's done that all for us in the cross, but we must open the door. And so the question this morning is, have you been born again? As we eat this bread, it reminds us of Jesus. And if you've never invited him into your life, as you take the physical bread into your life, will you invite the risen Lord Jesus to come into your life and forgive your sin and give you the gift of eternal life? you've already done that and you know his presence as we eat the bread will you say thank you thank you for dying on the cross for me and all you did for me he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and in a moment we'll take the cup to remember that he gave his life for us that we might have his eternal life for he's risen and he's here will you take the bread now and quietly just eat it and in your heart receive him by faith or in faith say thank you for forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life let's eat Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you came in Jesus, lived a perfect, sinless life, and died in our place as a sacrifice for our sin on the cross, that we might be redeemed, rescued from our bondage to sin and set free to be with you forever in your family, the church. And we pause this day to say thank you as we eat this bread to remember you. In Jesus' name. Amen.
before we drink the cup together. Watch the screen. Who's Bartholomew? I am he. Bring him. What you have to win by spreading fantasy? By mine own eyes, Tribune. I, I, I walked with him. He spoke to me. <laughs> it's unbelievable, but it is so. And conjure him up right now. <laughs> or show me the body he must have shed like a snakeskin. God is not at my beck and call. God, Yahweh manifests himself through a crazy, poor, dead Jew. <laughs> well, so it appears. What does this rebirth mean? Eternal life. For, for, for everyone. Everyone who believes. Marvelous recruiting tool. Much better than salt. How many are you? Well, we are few for now. And our only weapon is love. only weapon is love. He's put us in a family. You might say we are blood brothers because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We've each been forgiven and received the same eternal life by the one who rose again from the dead. So will you stand with me in honor of the risen one? And Let's raise our glasses to Jesus and say together, Christ has died, Christ was buried, Christ got the statement wrong. Let's say what's on that screen, not on the one I've done before. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Let's say it together. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That's what we affirm as we drink. Let's drink. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you're risen from the dead and through faith in what you've done for us, we have become brothers and sisters in Christ, receiving the same gift of eternal life through the same sacrifice of your blood on the cross for us. Lord, help us not to take for granted your sacrifice nor your family, nor the fact that you've promised to come again in power and glory to rule and reign on this earth.